chapter 2, he dealt with the fact that there are some people who don't get how life works, and some of them who don't get it become pastors and, and try to be leaders and, and mess people up. And so he goes through the, the way to tell and the way to recognize when someone is a false teacher. Here in chapter 3, though, he talks about some things that at, at first glance are a little weird to think that this is what you come up with as being your final word to people. He spends a lot of time in this chapter talking about the fact that the world is going to melt down someday and the difficulties that will be there. In the middle of it, some really interesting and important things, both theologically and practically. But I think when we look at it in the whole, in this third chapter, I decided to take it together because it's basically one major point that, that Peter makes in this chapter. And it involves something that there isn't anything that's more important for us than this one point, and that is what matters? What's important? What will last? And so he goes through this discussion in order to do it. Let's move through the chapter. I'll point out a few things, and then we'll zoom back and take a global look at it and see what Peter's point really is, his last point that he would communicate after a life of living with Jesus and then being used by him and serving him. And here's his last word to the church. Beginning with verse 1, 2 Peter chapter 3, he says, Beloved, I now write to you the second epistle, referring to 1 Peter as his first one, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. I'm telling you things that you basically know, but I'm reminding you of things that you need to pay attention to and remember. That you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. He says, I'm reminding you of that which the whole Bible has essentially been about. This is what God has been trying to say from the beginning. You've heard it. You know it. Here's the deal. But he says, knowing this first, as a preliminary consideration, that scoffers, the word scoffer there literally is, is the word in and the word for sport, so these are people who just make sport of some of the things of God, as you'll see. But they will come in the last days walking according to their own lusts, their own passions, and they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. He said, and, and the word of the prophets and the word of the apostles, it was all constantly, including the words of Jesus, about the fact that things are not going to continue like this forever. Jesus told his disciples in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Jesus referred to those times when everything that you see will be destroyed. The apostles talked about this constantly. The Old Testament prophets referred to the fact that all this stuff that you see is not always going to be here, but they obviously expected 
as we should, that Jesus could come back at any time. But a lot of people began to laugh when he didn't come back right away. And so Peter now is getting old, and no doubt he had expected, okay, Jesus, where are you? When are you going to come? And as, as the church began to experience more persecution, and it became clear that maybe he wouldn't come back as soon as they thought, there were those who really had a lot of fun laughing about that, making fun of that. And these people were basically believing a universalist theory of the universe that would say, basically, it's always been this way, it's always going to be this way, and you guys are sitting here thinking that someday something's going to happen where God's going to come, set up his kingdom, destroy everybody who doesn't like him. Well, where is he? Come on. This is ridiculous. And, you know, you can understand where people would have a problem with it if you expected him to come immediately. Now, if it was true in their days, it's, it's much more true today, where we have been talking about and the Bible has been predicting that God is going to come and bring an end to all of these things, and yet it's been almost 2,000 years and he hasn't shown up yet. And so... Today, there are a whole lot of people who would go, yeah, back in the 70s, you were saying Jesus could come back at any time. <laughs> Where is he? And a lot of people just give up on the whole notion because they expected him to come back sooner than he has. And so some of them will spiritualize it and go, well, he kind of came in a way as he dwells within his people. And they start making up excuses instead of saying, he hasn't come back yet, but that's okay. But he's saying these people are like those who, for, for much of the history of science, there was this idea that that which we see, the material universe, has always been here. Now, there's a reason why scientists wanted to believe that, because if you want to believe that there is not a God... And so, therefore, you don't want to explain where everything came from, because it's real hard to explain how we got here without a God who, would, who created. And so, they say, well, no, there's no God who created, because matter and time and space and all of these things, energy, they've just always been here. And they are mutating, and some improvements happen, and some deterioration, but basically, we're looking at a universe that was always here. Now, the, the overwhelming evidence of science goes against that. And so nowadays, very few scientists would still hold to that view, that it's always been the way it is now and will always be the same way. And so they've at least come up with a Big Bang theory where this happened out of some explosion billions of years ago. But that is a problem because even if it was billions of years, that's not nearly enough time for what we see to have randomly occurred and have happened. But what Peter is addressing is those people who just go, well, you know what? It just goes back forever and it'll go forward forever. And they think it's really funny that we talk about an end to these things. And so as they say that, he says in verse 5, for this they willfully forget. There's something that they are ignoring that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. 
But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So he says one thing that they're forgetting is there's plenty of evidence in the, in the world to, to designate the fact that it hasn't always been the way it is. Now he refers to this time of old when the earth was in the water and out of the water and a flood destroyed things. And the most obvious reference that he's making here, I would think, would be to the time of the flood during Noah's lifetime when, when God actually just caused the water to overflow everything. He basically took a mulligan on creation and started over with going, okay, I will wipe this out and I'll start over. So he says the same word of God that caused the place to be created in the first place wiped it out. So don't forget, God has done this before and he could do it again. Now, I have to say that there are a couple of different understandings of this scripture. And there are those who would believe that what he's referring to isn't Noah's flood, but it's actually a time in which something was wiped out back in the beginning, in the earlier part. In Genesis chapter 1, he says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, tohu wavohu in Hebrew, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. The Spirit of God moved upon the waters, and therefore he called out, you know, and, and, and the, the creation narrative happens after that. There are people who suggest that when darkness was upon the face of the deep, that was an indication that something else had been wiped out, and Genesis 1 and 2 is actually a recreation of the world that we see now. And there's some merit to some of that discussion, and you can go back to our studies in Genesis and, and hear more about that, but because you look at it and go, well, for one thing, the universe appears to be a lot older than what it would seem that time allows, but that's not a deal killer at all. Um, the question is, when were the angels created? They were clearly created before the seven days of creation because they are said in other places in Scripture to have been observing to that creation. When did Satan fall? When was he cast to earth? Some people would suggest that when he was cast to earth, it was what made this formless and void mass of water that then God recreated into the earth as we know it. But I just want to acknowledge that as a, as a possibility. Again, for me, the clearest indication here is of the, of the uh, flood of Noah and how, but the point is, he's saying, look, things have been destroyed before and they can be destroyed again. Don't assume that everything's just always going in a universal way. And that's the problem with so many of the observations that science makes even nowadays is they don't take into account the fact that catastrophes have happened. One for sure, perhaps others, that would, that would twist and distort some of the uh, material that provides evidence for our understanding of the universe. But Peter's point is, with a word God created it, with a word he's destroyed it before, and with a word he can destroy it again. But he goes on and says, but beloved... Do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. He's kind of quoting over in Psalm 90, where the psalmist said, 
God to you, a thousand years are like yesterday when it's past. In other words, God, you exist outside of time, and so to you, time doesn't mean a whole lot. You're not bound by time. You're not limited by it. The, and, and some people make too much of this, and they say, oh, okay, so for God, a thousand years equals one day. And some people would even define the days of creation as, well, they must be a thousand years each. And Now, it, he's not making a time rule. Quite the contrary to that. He's saying, as far as God's concerned, time isn't a big deal. He operates outside of it. God is never in a hurry. God is never feeling like, when are we going to deal with this? God is not, it, it's not that he isn't returning because he's really busy with some other stuff. You know, he's going, oh man, I, I'd like to return, but I have some other stuff to deal with first. He's going, when you're thinking about God, divorce yourself from the whole expectation about time. God's not limited by time. But, he says, in one of the great verses of the Bible, the Lord is not slack, he's not slacking off concerning what he's promised, as some people count slackness, but he is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. A really important verse and a really uh, critical verse in dealing with some understandings of some of the basic fundamentals of theology. Now, without just sinking into great detail concerning this, this verse describes the heart of God, and that's really the point that the reason why he hasn't returned yet and the reason why he hasn't wiped everything out yet is simply because he's waiting for us to do the work that he's given us to do and that is go out and get people saved because his heart is for people who are lost. Now, this verse is difficult to understand for some people who have opted for the notion that you know, God doesn't want to save everyone. He only wants to save certain people. And so what is called limited atonement, and that which is, is proposed by those of Reformed theology or Calvinism, and by the way, these are good people who love God, who are committed to Him. The reason they come up with the notion of limited atonement is in trying to make sense of the fact that what does God want? Because the Bible clearly teaches that God wants to save, and here he says, he isn't willing that any should perish. So that presents the problem of, wait, if he doesn't want any to perish, how come somebody's gonna perish? And so some people take this verse and they teach what's called universalism, which is because God's not willing that any should perish, because he died for the sins of everyone, even as Isaiah said in the 53rd chapter, all we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Therefore, everyone's going to get saved because that's what God wants. And that's really logical. Um, and I'd love to believe it, except the Bible teaches against it. The Bible teaches that there are people who will reject Jesus Christ and suffer eternally as a result of that. So a universalist would take this scripture and go, he isn't willing that any should perish. So therefore, nobody's going to perish because God gets what he wants. Now, the other way to deal with this is to say it must not mean all 
all. It must not mean that any, but you change it to say, God isn't willing that any of the elect would perish. He wants all of the chosen to come to repentance. And I understand why that position is attractive. And it is logical, it seems like, to us. The problem is, again, there are so much, there's so much of Scripture that um, would seem to contradict that. Even Jesus, as we saw going through the Gospels, where he's weeping over Jerusalem, and he's saying, how I longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. From the mouth of Jesus himself, there are people that God would love to save, but their rebellion stands in the way of him being able to do that. Do I understand all of that? No. I, um, I make a terrible Calvinist, I make a terrible Arminian, because I do believe that God chooses. I do believe that he chose me before the foundation of the world. I don't believe he chose me on the basis of what he thought I would become, because I really am not worth it. But here, I would rather say, this is what it says. And I would rather be at odds with every theological camp that there is, and certainly not take a chance at watering down the heart of God. So to me, if it says God wants to save everyone, and that's why he's waiting, um, I believe that his heart is that he wants every person to be saved. I don't believe that's going to happen, and I can't explain it in a real clean way theologically, but I do not want to limit what this verse means when it's Peter's whole point in showing here is the heart of our Father. Here is the heart of God. He doesn't want anyone to perish. And I wouldn't pass judgment on God, but I like that he says that. Now, his whole point in this context, though, is understand this. The material world, God's going to melt it down, and he goes on to talk about that. But he said the reason why that hasn't happened yet is very simple. God wants some more people to be saved. I'm glad that God has been patient. Now, back when I became a Christian, 1971, I expected Jesus would come back really soon. And for my personal interest, that would have been great. I would have loved to have spent the last 40 years in heaven, frankly. But I'm so glad that didn't happen now in retrospect because so many people I love have been saved since then. So many people I love have been born since then and saved that I'm glad he was patient. And so Peter's giving that perspective and saying this is important for you to know and to understand. This is God's heart. This is why he is allowing this to continue. But we pick up again in verse 10. And he says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. That term, the day of the Lord, is a term that refers to all of those future things. It refers to the time that we call Jacob's trouble or the tribulation period where during that seven years, God's wrath is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world and lots of disasters happen. The term also refers to a, a millennial kingdom where he sets up his rule and reign here on earth. Amazingly, even at the end of that period, we see that there are some people who rebel against 
Jesus even at that point. And then the destruction that will ensue and the establishment of the eternal state, even the time of the removal of the church from the scene and the rapture of the church, um, all of that collectively is called the day of the Lord. And this is confusing to us because to us a day means a day. But remember, as Peter said, a day is like a thousand years to him, a thousand years is like a day. Time isn't so critical to him. And so it's painting the picture of this entire event that collectively sums up that which is on the earth. The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. People who aren't going to see it coming, there will be scoffers, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Now, there's some interesting terminology here. In, in the days when Peter was writing, the whole idea of even the elements, what we would describe as the atomic structure, was not something that was even commonly understood or referred to. Now, to talk about an element melting would have been hard for them to fathom also. But this word for melt is an interesting word in the Greek. It's the word luo. It doesn't really mean melt. Now, later on, a few verses later, the word that's translated melt is the word that would designate melting. But luo is the word that means to loose or to release. And, and I think what he is describing here is something that even Peter didn't have a concept of why he selected the words that the Lord allowed him to use, but it's something that today we well understand. The idea of an element, of the most elementary particles, those, those subatomic particles, and the, collectively the atom being released, being divided and split, and the power that holds atoms together being unleashed. And so here he is saying, the day is going to come and you'll be surprised to see it. Those elemental parts of matter are going to be unleashed. And the result is going to be fire like you can't even conceive of, as he here describes uh, basically the best description I can think of for some sort of nuclear holocaust, and likely that's what he's referring to. But he says, as a result of that fervent heat and that atomic meltdown, he goes, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, same word, they'll be luo, they'll be set loose, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? He says, what should you be like in light of the fact that you know this is the case? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt, that means literally dissolve, with fervent heat, Nevertheless, we, according to the, his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. He says, our perspective is this is simply demolition that is going to lead to a glorious construction of something that is much superior. And he goes on and says in verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, not the destruction looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth that he referred to in the previous verse. Um, here, now, we're dealing with the hassles of 
construction, but it doesn't look like construction. You know, we had our beautiful windows knocked out and these ugly plywood walls with the goo between them and, you know, the, you know where we used to have a wonderful Zen garden out here, you know, now there's a hole in the ground and yet every time I come in every day, I look and I go, look, they poured the footings for those support. Look, it's trenched out and it's ready, you know, and, and seeing that, oh, the roof is torn off, they've got the bathrooms torn out and all that kind of stuff. I don't get excited because I love seeing the church torn up, but I get excited because it means we're a step closer to actually finishing this thing. And in the same way, it says, when you look at what's happening in the world, understand this is something good because the tearing down of the old means the renovation is about to take place, and it's a good thing. I like watching um, those home improvement shows where you know, they tear everything up and redo it and build it. I, I mainly like it because it's a lot easier to lay on the couch and watch that than to actually do it yourself. <laughs> but the, the demolition is necessary for the construction. And he's saying, when you see that the stuff is going to be melted down, understand that there's a reason for it. Something good is coming, new heavens and new earth. And so he said, when you see that, look forward to it, be diligent to be found by him in peace, not freaking out, without spot and blemish, living holy lives, as he said, and consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is all about salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you. As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand. It's, I find it ironic that Peter says, yeah, Paul wrote about this stuff too, but I know the way Paul writes it, a lot of people don't understand it. It's funny because there's way much harder stuff to understand in First and Second Peter, just a handful of chapters. Peter says some strange things, but he couldn't see that. Um, you know, you let a fisherman write a book, this is what happens, but... but <laughs> You know, he's going, yeah, Paul wrote about this stuff too, and he, but he says, uh, you know, there are some people who don't understand it and some untaught and unstable people twist what Paul has said to their own destruction as they do also the rest of scriptures. That's an important verse because Peter, the first pope, <laughs> no, not really, but <laughs> Peter is saying what Paul wrote is scripture. You can put it right with the prophecies the law and the prophets from the Old Testament, it's Scripture. No doubt Peter had a sense that what he was writing was inspired by God, the Holy Spirit breathing it through him, and we have his stamp of approval on the writings of Paul. So if you think, well, you know, Paul, yeah, he wrote 13, 14 books of the New Testament, but I have an issue with Paul. Well, your issue better accommodate the fact that Peter says Paul wrote Scripture, but he says, people twist all what God says, but you therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, you know how it ends, beware lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. So what's all this mean? you have this discussion of the meltdown of the universe. And you have this incredible statement 
of the fact that the reason it hasn't melted yet is because God loves people and he wants to save them. And then he says, that knowledge should change the way you are. That knowledge should cause you to want to be holy, to consider the kind of person that you are and how you live your life. It has ramifications. So how do you put all this together? Simply this, and this I believe is the point of this chapter, and it has direct application to the way we live our lives every single day of our life. And that is, we live in a material universe, but everything that you see, almost everything that you see, is gonna burn. It's not gonna last. The only thing that you see that will last are the people around you and the people who you take with you when you go to heaven. They are what matters. God's not attached to the stuff. You know, God doesn't think, oh man, I'd love to go melt this place, but seeing Fort Knox running like a river into the dirt with all that beautiful gold, what would I do? Where am I gonna get more gold to make the streets of heaven? Because if Fort Knox melts, God doesn't care about gold. He doesn't care about our building or anybody else's building. He doesn't care about your car. God doesn't shudder when you get that first dent in your new car. God doesn't just go, oh, no. I gave him that car. (laughs) He gave you that car because he loves you. It's not about the present. It's about the relationship that comes from that exchange and from that gift and everything that he has given us. Now, he isn't saying that things don't matter. In fact, he created this whole world and it all matters. He created the beauty of nature and he has provided for you materially even to the point where you can go and enjoy a nice meal or you can enjoy having a special time with people or whatever but it was never about the stuff. It's all about the people. And so when he looks at this earth, he looks past all the stuff, and he sees people, and he says, that's what I'm about. That's where my heart is. And so he tells us, okay, in light of this, what kind of people ought we to be? In all holiness, good behavior. Why? Because the way we live our lives is influential in bringing those for whom Christ died to a relationship with him, and they will last. Those people who you can't stand, those people in the world who who reject Jesus Christ, his heart for them is, I want to reach them. And he wants to reach them through us, And how we live our lives, the perspective that we maintain, the way that we treat stuff as opposed to people for whom Christ died, that means something because that draws people to Jesus. Now, I love the last couple days being up in the mountains. I love the beauty that's up there. And I, you know, I'm not known as a real tree hugger, but I love to go walk in beauty. And there are people who just say, when I go up there, I feel so close to God. But those trees weren't created in the image of God. We should 
If we are on the streets of the inner city and seeing drunks falling down in the gutter, we are closer to God than we are about a bunch of trees that someday he's going to wipe out and burn down because he can make a whole lot more just like them. And no doubt will. But people, they are unique and they're going to last forever. And so he, he is encouraging us here, live your life valuing that which will last valuing things that are permanent. And, you know, appreciate and enjoy the temporal things, the blessings. God, Paul told Timothy, tell the rich people, don't be afraid to enjoy what they have. Make sure they share as well. But the bottom line is, what are you doing for that which matters? What are you doing for that which lasts? And that's Peter as an old guy. That's his final word to people. After this, he as far as we know, he didn't write anything else. He didn't write anything else that, that we know of. And, and really quickly, he was crucified upside down, gave his life willfully. God, the Lord had already told him that was going to happen. And he said, I'm glad I wrote that third chapter before I did. Because from the perspective of a guy whose life is almost over, I look back and all that matters is what matters to my Father, and that is communicating my love to them so that they can receive my Son, so that they can spend eternity with God. And for all of us, how important it is that we understand this perspective, that we set our values on that which is valuable to Him that we not become obsessed with things, that our joy doesn't hinge on how the stock market went this week or how things are going at work or whether the car's running okay or none of that stuff, that should just be piddly compared to the people that we have an opportunity to touch for him. You know, I saw this last week being over there in China and spending time with some of the missionaries. It was such a blessing, but I, you know, I thought I got to spend some real quality time with Jeff Henneforth, who many of you know, he was a pastor here for several years, and now he's in Cambodia. And he lives in a little place called Poi Pet, which if you go there, you realize it is a dump, literally. The, there's only two nice buildings there, and they're casinos. And other than that, it's, it's a grossly immoral place, Entire streets of houses of prostitution, including those that feature little children. It's a disgusting place. It's a place that we would describe as being God-forsaken. It's the place of the killing fields. It's the place where the Khmer Rouge ruled in a way that was just devastating. So much evil, so much yuckiness there. Jeff Henneforth was a kid who grew up at Calvary, knew him since he was a little kid, went to school there, went and graduated from college, went to Georgetown Law School and did very well there and became an attorney for a large firm. And the whole world was his oyster. But God began speaking to him about ministry. And now he's living in Poipet and preparing a, a, you know, a school for pastors a school of ministry, because the pastor's over there, a whole village will get saved, and the guy that came forward first becomes the pastor. They don't know anything. And I'm telling you, 
talking to Jeff and spending time with him, I've never, ever seen him so excited. Now, in the past, when they would come up with a new video game, I saw Jeff thrilled. There were other things that excited him, but nothing like this. Nothing like having part in saving people for eternity. And he has a love for those people. And God's given him an in with the Cambodian military, which is really cool. And he was telling me, yeah, it's neat. The general called me the other day, and he invited me to come and spend a few days on the base. And he goes, their base is really primitive. It's full of dirt and dust. And he said, I have to bring my own cot or sleeping bag and a mosquito net. But he goes, I'm so excited about it. I'm looking forward to it. This is Orange County kid. And he's like, that's so cool that I get to do that. He's baptized hundreds of soldiers there on the military base itself. Doors are open in Cambodia that are not open here. And how does that make sense? It only makes sense if what Peter said is true, that God's heart burns for every person who's lost. And we have an opportunity. What are we going to to focus on? What are we going to care about? The people around us that last forever? Or the stuff that just will end up melting and going away? And that's what Peter was just, you got to get this. This is what he is stressing. This is what mattered to him at the end of his life. Not his old fishing business that he missed. Not, you know, getting ahead. Not thinking, man, someday they're going to build icons of me. That's going to be so cool. And build big cathedrals and, and, and honoring me. They'll come and kiss my toe of a statue. He didn't care about any of that stuff. He'd laugh at that. But the fact that somebody's heart would be touched for eternity by his word and his encouragement, I believe that at the end of his life, that's what he was thrilled about. And I think that we would do well while we are still alive to adjust our priorities in the same way. Again, not just throwing everything away. God gave us things for a reason, but realizing they're temporary, but realizing that each of us has an opportunity to invest in that which will last forever. Uh, in the discussion questions for this week for the home fellowships, the first question that I asked, and you'll see it in your bulletin, I asked the question, what's the best money you've ever spent? That is, what have, what have you bought in the past that you're still really glad that you did. And I'd suggest to you as you think about that question, and I have over the last couple of weeks reflecting on it, probably the best thing that you ever spent money on was not something temporary. Chances are, maybe for you it was taking a friend out to dinner and buying them a nice dinner and blessing them and then the next thing you know, they were gone. But you have that memory and you're so glad that you did it. Maybe for you, it was just simply buying a card for someone that you know meant a lot to them and they said, when I got that card, I was thinking about taking my life. And you go, I was whining about spending five bucks on a Hallmark card and that value is so amazing. Maybe for you, the best money you ever spent was having a baby. Man, I remember when we had our 
first, especially with our second kid, we were so broke, and then we found out we needed a cesarean, and our insurance at the time had this huge co-payment, and it was, we had to get, sell our house in order to, to pay for a baby, but you know, I've never once thought Danny wasn't worth it. That was some of the best money I ever spent, was on bringing that little guy into the world, who I just love passionately. I, and, and so we need to think in terms of, okay, what matters? Well, is that where we're putting our investment? Is that where we are? You know, when I see God using people overseas, as I did with a bunch of our missionaries, I was so excited to just take them out to Outback or, and, well, I ate terrible in China. People go, how'd you do on the weird food? I'm like, well, I went to Outback, Ruth's Chris, McDonald's, Burger King, California Pizza Kitchen, Pizza Hut. Um, It wasn't bad. (laughs) There's something disgusting about gaining five or six pounds on a missions trip. But see, looking at all of that, I don't think, man, was that pizza good. I think that forever, the time I spent with those missionaries encouraging them, what a bargain. What a bargain to fly halfway around the world in order to do that and to encourage them in doing that which will last. And I would encourage all of us to live our lives in such a way that everything that we see, we go, that's going to burn, that's going to burn, that's going to burn. I'm spending eternity with you. And to keep that as our perspective. When we do that, it changes the way we live. It changes everything about what matters to us. And that's what old Peter would encourage us here, winding down his ministry, winding down his last letter. He's gone, just know, some stuff doesn't last. Others do. The heart of our Father is with that which lasts. And so grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, because all the glory goes to him. And if you align your life with that, then you too will have an impact on eternity. Let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for this word from Peter. And this reminder, because, man, we live in this world and it's so easy for us to start to believe that this stuff matters. We start caring about it because there's so much of it. And frankly, these people that you died for can be so obnoxious that we sometimes forget how valuable they are. Lord, call our attention to what you think matters and help us to align our lives in such a way that the way we live holy lives, draws others like moths to a flame to that which will purchase eternity in heaven for them. We thank you for this reminder and for your love. In Jesus' name, amen.